Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. So happy you could join us today. And we want to welcome a new contributor to this week's program. I want to welcome Juan Villasmil. Juan, I know I'm butchering your last name, but uh, I am so thankful to have you aboard as a guest today. And in addition to being a Young Voices contributor, tell us just a little bit about who you are and what you do. Thank you very much. It's an honor to be here. Uh, so my name is Juan Pablo. You can call me JP. It's fine. Um, I love to write about culture, foreign policy, and Gen C specific issues. I joined Young Voices this year. Well, actually, how many months ago? Uh, three months ago. Uh, and it's been great so far. I, I wrote before Young Voices. I pitched solo. And that was fun. But now I can do it better, uh, more effective, and the team of Young Voices has really helped me uh, publish some really good work. So I want to continue to do this. It's what I love to do. So yeah. Okay, and I will call you JP. I think that that's, that's a wonderful way to go. Um, one thing that's really impressed me about Young Voices, and, and you are no exception here, um, it's a very talented pool of writers and commentators, but you write about things of substance. Case in point, I'm looking at an article of yours from realclearworld.com, um, speaking about uh, French President Emmanuel Macron and how he's not wrong about China and how the U.S. Uh, should be paying attention, should worry. So I have to admit, there's a lot going on. This one wasn't on my radar screen. Um, apparently, President Macron went to China in the fairly uh, recent past. Talk to me about the purpose of that visit and what were some of the takeaways that he brought uh, from his visit to China? Yeah, so uh, Macron has has been, he's gone beyond what other Europeans have done uh, in a rather public way in approaching China uh, and embracing uh, she would be a little too strong because it's not like he forgot that the U.S. exists. Uh, but he has made it a, a clear point to state that France should not be a vassal state uh, to U.S. interests. He used that term. And in conflicts in regard to Taiwan, for example, he has been really uh, precise when he says, if this conflict begins... France should not pick a side, and I believe Europe should not pick a side at all either. Uh, so when he went to Beijing, uh, for economic reasons, of course, 50% uh, of the world's population lives in Asia. Everyone knows how powerful China is, and uh, they have a hold in manufacturing and green technologies and so much more. Uh, so it just makes sense for Macron to say this. Uh, but the way he said it, though, was what concerned a lot of people. A lot of Europeans, in my article, I, I mentioned how uh, Joseph Borrell from the European Union, he says very similar things. You know, he has been saying for a while that the EU should be more transactional and neutral in regard to rela their relationship with China and the U.S. But the way uh, Macron said it was too strong. Uh, so that one was caused a problem. 
No, that makes, I mean, French is supposed to be the language of diplomacy, and um, maybe this seemed uncharacteristically strong. I was curious, what was the reaction? I know there's some fairly um, hawkish U.S. voices, and, and it seems like when I do hear them talk about China, it's almost always, we've got to position ourselves, the com- the conflict with the U.S. and China is coming, we see it coming. Um, how did th- those voices react in the U.S. to, to what Macron said? Yeah, so... That's what was, for me, really interesting. Uh, People were indignated, which makes sense if you're in the U.S. and one of your besties goes hanging out with one of your enemies. uh, I don't know. It won't make you happy. Uh, If they're taking selfies, let's say, if they're having a good time without you, Uh, especially now when tensions are high. Uh, But what I didn't like, but I understand nonetheless, is the people were really quick to call Macron a fool, uh, to say that he's just like acting irrationally. And what I say in my article is, that's not the way to approach this. What Macron's doing makes sense for France, which doesn't necessarily mean that it makes sense for America. What a lot of US foreign policy folks have been doing is talking as if the European interests and the individual nations within Europe are always aligned with U.S. interests. But the reality is, is that for Europe, China's not as much a threat as Russia is. For the U.S., it's quite the opposite. Uh, China is our most formidable geopolitical competitor. And they're in the Western Hemisphere. They're really, really, really powerful. And they have vast control over critical minerals and so many resources telecommunications, et cetera, et cetera. So that's something that we need to start like being sincere about. Even I understand even if you if publicly you say Macron is stupid, I guess that makes sense, rhetoric or whatever. But if you actually believe that, that's a problem. If US diplomats think, oh my God, it's so dumb that these people are being soft on China then you don't, you don't understand foreign policy. And I generally think that a lot of these people, a lot of young journalists in the foreign policy sphere, they think this way. They're like, oh my God, Macron doesn't understand. Like, why would he approach China? That's so dumb. Why wouldn't he? If the U.S. is not going to change, like the U.S. is not going to like abandon France if they approach China. If they can, if they can have U.S. support, military support, uh, the transatlantic bond can be strong, and then can they can have an increasingly transactional and strong relationship with China. That's fantastic for France. Uh, it just makes sense. So what are we going to do about it? That's the question. Not just call him stupid. Well, there was a pretty fair amount of that kind of name calling, though, um, you know, 20 some years ago with uh, the um, the Gulf War, you know, and, and the invasion of Iraq. You know, France was like, hey, um, we support, you know, you guys getting, you know, Saddam out of power, but we're not going to be sending troops. And, you know, we renamed French fries, freedom fries and so forth. I mean, it was it was almost comical, but um, France has taken a more pragmatic approach before. And um, frankly, I, I guess th- here's my question. Who who are the rational voices when it comes to addressing China and for that matter, Russia? Because it seems like both of them. We're headed on a collision course in some way with both of them, or at least it's potentially a collision course. Are there rational voices out there that you're aware of? 
yeah, I'm not always a, a big fan of the French uh, in terms of philosophy, etc. cetera. Uh, but foreign policy-wise, at least Macron has not been witless. Uh, it makes sense. He's, he's really, again, I don't have the his entire resume in front of me, but I've seen so many actions that he has taken, so many statements that demonstrate that he's aware, acutely aware, actually, of France's tangible interests and that his actions follow that logic, that he's looking at what can be done right now, why, how, for how long, and that those actions inform his diplomacy. I think Europe, at, like writ large, has a similar policy. I think Europe actually often acts in smarter ways than the US does. Um, but I don't know. I don't know how far I would go to say that they're like super rational. There's a lot of things I disagree with the the EU. Uh, there's a lot of things I disagree with the U.S. and how they carry their foreign policy. But I do see a, a rising um, group of intellectuals, thinkers, writers that are looking at foreign policy, and they're not just talking about grand designs and and democracy and liberty, but they're they're thinking about what can we do now, for what reasons, for how long, why. Liberal internationalism, uh, isolationism, uh, realism, uh, all these terms, I understand them. They're like useful to understand concepts and grasp realities, but no one in the foreign policy world actually thinks like that. So the real smart thing to do is to just ask a ton of questions and make sure that those questions are smart questions. For example, how much money? For how long? Why? What do we win from this? And sometimes those questions are easy to answer and we forget about them or we ignore them because we're just like diving into an ideological world that is just actually stupid, not like Macron. <laughs> hey, anytime someone is urging, let's let's you know dial in or dial back the name calling and actually you know focus on what there might be of substance i'm like we should probably listen to that person thank you for being a voice of reason again we're talking with uh, juan pablo villas mill he is a young voices contributor where can our listeners find you on social media where can they follow your work i actually created twitter a real jp villas mill uh, I don't know if it, I don't know if it's gonna be there for long because I had a Twitter before that and it got hacked by some crypto coin people. So I, I'm technically evading a ban. Uh, <laughs> so follow me there and on Instagram too, JP Villas Mail. Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. Happy to welcome Donald Kimball back to the program. He is a Young Voices contributor. And Donald, I'm gonna ask you to take just a moment and tell us about some of the other hats that you wear for the sake of those meeting you for the first time. Yeah, thank you so much for having me back. I appreciate it. Um, I work for the Washington Policy Center as their communications manager, um, as well as being a contributor for Young Voices. So it's been a great uh, symbiosis between the two, I think. 
I uh, I really appreciated the article that I'm looking at right now, and this is one you wrote for uh, HeraldNet.com uh, regarding school choice. It's called School Choice Can Rouse Public Schools from Complacency. Um, I told you before we went on the air, I follow this topic very close because in my home state of Idaho, this is a big deal. I know it's, it's big in other states, but um, talk to me about, uh, first of all, where does the complacency come in public schools? And then let's talk about how school choice might actually be a cure for that complacency. Yeah. Well, it's been interesting to see how, especially in light of the COVID years, the shutdowns, things like that, how the school system has responded. Because naturally, when you close schools down for you know, multiple years, Washington, I believe, was the 46th state to reopen after COVID, there was going to be a lot of learning loss. And that's what the results have shown. My colleague, Lee Finna, who is our Center for Education Director, has done incredible work. So I recommend anyone who's interested in this, go check out our WashingtonPolicy.org. Look at her work. She's done amazing stuff. That's where I pull all my numbers from. But we we have had just abysmal test results, something like 62% of students could not uh, pass adequate math, 49% in English. And the response to this has not been a an introspective how you know how do we need to adjust how do we need to recuperate? In fact, the um, Office of Superintendent of Public Instruction posted an article uh, that included a statement by a, a, a middle school counselor who said students are not behind; they gained a lot during that time. It just wasn't what we traditionally would have taught. Now. Very I, optimistic. I'm not gonna, I was going to say, I'm, I'm all for finding the silver lining, but that's akin to saying, you know, children who go through traumatic events, they often form a resiliency because of those traumatic events. And it's like, yeah, like, it's good that you can, you know, be stronger from something that's difficult, but that doesn't mean that that's where you should be going or that that was a good thing. We, we should probably be figuring out how do we move away from that. And so I think that the public education system in Washington state has been trying to just dump more money. Uh, into the system, and then they claim they're getting less money when that's not the case. We've increased our spending per student. We've increased on almost every metric that you can count uh, the kinds of dollars we've put in, but we haven't been getting the results. So my basic argument is that if we have school choice, then there's actual incentive to have schools do better, whether that's a private school, whether that's a charter school, or whether that's a traditional public school. If you're competing for those dollars and those students, you have more of an incentive to to work yourself out of sort of these bad test results and, and into more of a recovery. Yep, competition isn't the dirty word that uh, that some people have made it. Yeah, exactly. And and I think that um, you know Washington State has had limited charter schools, and those have done very well for themselves. Now they they've been in districts that maybe don't have as traditionally wealthy students um, sometimes, and yet they still tend to outperform based on the demographics. And so I think, you know, the moment that you have a little bit of incentive, uh, people start thinking rather than, again, being complacent and thinking, well, we're going to get the dollars anyway, we're going to get the students anyway. You have to think, how do we earn that? How do we actually move forward uh, in a way that is promoting both our own good and the students' own good? So where does the uh, where does the greatest amount of pushback against school choice come from? I, I, I have an idea, but I want to hear you tell me uh, in your experience, where does it originate? You know, it's it's a lot of the teachers unions. I think that that's kind of the you know, the the common truth that a lot of people realize. It has also come from the Office of Superintendent and Public uh, Instruction. And then I think that there are a lot of people who maybe hear something like vouchers and they get a little scared because that word has maybe been a little maligned in the past. And so 
it's kind of a combination of these things. The, the teachers unions in particular want to push back because when they get funding based on student attendance and money coming in that way, they're guaranteed a uh, revenue stream. And that, of course, then they can funnel into supporting candidates who are going to support them and things like that. And so the idea of parents having the ability to direct their funds where they want them, it means that they're not guaranteed that same level of, of revenue stream and, and membership and things like that. One of the interesting dynamics was over the COVID shutdowns, the governor, actually, who is who is a Democrat and tends to favor uh, teacher union policies and things, was actually at odds with the teachers unions because he was trying to get the schools to reopen and the teachers unions did not want to reopen the schools. I think that that was a drastically harmful effect for students. And you can see if you compare um, our public school or excuse me, our private schools reopened much, much earlier. And they even again, accounting for the sort of predisposed demographics of, of private school versus public schools, they outperformed uh, tremendously in terms of how their testing was and how, how they did because they were able to meet and, and effectively and safely. There were also no health repercussions from it. So all of this to say, to say that Parents like the idea of of being able to choose their school. The percentages of homeschooled and private schooled students have gone up drastically. And it's still not a huge number in our state, but it shows that the appetite is there. And if we allow more parents to have access to that, because I think that the percentage growing shows that the appetite is there. It's just oftentimes people don't have the ability to to, you know, pay for a private school or homeschool. Uh, if you if you allow them to do that with the tax dollars that they're already putting in the system, you're going to see a lot more parents will engage with school choice and choose alternate options, which again should help public schools realize we maybe need to start providing a little bit more for the students that are being left behind in the current system. Donald, what are you seeing from other states that are likewise um, dealing with school choice and in some cases successfully implementing school choice policies? What are you seeing that works out there? Yeah, I mean, you you can look at, um, I, I think, you know, the closest neighbor to us right now that's that's gone with a program that we would love to emulate here is Arizona. And their, you know, their, their uh, system is starting. I don't know that it's fully in effect yet. This maybe this is the first school year that that it is in effect, but they have had a record number of signups. Parents are flocking to this. It is extremely popular. And I think that there might be an adjustment period. It's not, you know, I think that one of the problems is a lot of people in politics generally, they like to sell their idea and pretend that there's never going to be a bump in the road, right? There's there's never going to be an issue. And you, you compare sort of, oh, we're in this terrible system now and we're going to move into perfection. There's probably going to be an adjustment period. There's probably going to be lessons that we have to learn. But I think that when we, a lot, on the other foot, a lot of people will talk about school choice, you're going to end up with so many students left behind. You're going to end up with students who, who uh, you know, don't don't get the education that they should because the private schools are going to do X, Y or Z. But they fail to look at the current status quo and see that there are students that are forced to be left behind. So I think when we look at other states like Arizona and I know that Florida's had some success, I think that you can see that when you have a, a an adjustment period and parents are able to make this choice, then schools can kind of acclimate to that environment and start competing, and then it will start evening out the playing field, and it becomes more of a choice between good options rather than let's all flee the really bad option, which is the only option right now. You had mentioned earlier that uh, vouchers has kind of become, uh, I don't know, a cuss word of sorts. I mean, I've, <laughs> I've seen it in Idaho as, too, as well. The people who oppose school choice just love to throw that word around. Um, 
is what's a good accurate definition when we talk about school choice so it doesn't just get you know sidelined by you know well that's that's a voucher system you're describing yeah i think well i think broadly speaking school choice as a descriptor for the descriptor for the movement is an excellent uh, description because that is what we are advocating for whether it's through some technical term of vouchers or or other program is a little bit besides the point the main issue that we want to promote is having you know fund the students not the systems which i believe Corey deangelis has been very good about pushing that term and and ultimately at the end of the day is we want a, a system that promotes students rather than its own success. We want parents to be empowered to choose what is best for their child. And the, the specific mechanism of that is less important, I think. And the end result being that we want a good education for children, regardless of where they are located, who they are, um, and what their needs are you should be able to be empowered to have that choice to do what's best for them. Okay, again, we are talking with Donald Kimball. He is a Young Voices contributor. And Donald, for people who would like to follow you, where can they find you on social media? Where can they follow your work? Yeah, you can find me on X uh, at Kimball Donald. It's K-I-M-B-A-L-L Donald. And uh, we also post all these kinds of articles at WashingtonPolicy.org. Everything I've written here is based on the great work of Lee Finna, our Center for Education Director. So definitely go to WashingtonPolicy.org and check her work out. Welcome back. This is our third segment today on Moving Forward with Young Voices. We're very happy to welcome Akila Jayaram back to the program. Uh, for, the, for folks who are meeting you for the very first time today, um, Akila, could you take just a moment and just tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do? So thank you so much for the introduction, Brian. My name is Akila, as Brian has introduced me, and I'm actually completing my PhD in physics at the University of Cambridge, and hence the article to Today is very relevant to what I've been doing, I would say, for almost all my adult life. I've been in academia for so long, and I'm unfortunately leaving. And I think some of the issues mentioned in the article are probably reasons for me leaving the sector as well. So it would be interesting to uh, discuss more about this. Yeah, and I, I was telling Akila before we went on the air, um, when I think of the science capital of the world, um, I, I don't know if I would have originally thought, yes, Europe, it really has, you know, the potential to be the science capital of the world. And then my son decided he would go to Germany to finish his uh, his postgraduate work in molecular biology. And suddenly I'm paying attention and going, my goodness, there are some just absolutely brilliant schools there. Now, your article specifically is making the case that um, with with private funding for academia, Britain actually could be Europe's science capital. Set the stage for me. Tell me a little bit about uh, about uh, scientific research and, and the scientific community in Britain as it stands right now. Yeah, thank you so much, Brian. I think in, in the UK in particular, science and technology has always been at the forefront, but not so much at the forefront of the government's mind. But recently, the present government has launched a set of policy initiatives. I mean, every other day I see an, an announcement of yet another million pounds being directed towards AI research, direct, being directed towards high risk and high reward research and also the chancellor so that's the secretary uh, the person who's uh, responsible for treasury in this country um announced a 3.5 billion investment into science and technology uh, in his speech where he sets out the government's priorities in terms of funding but i think where 
you know, people have been missing the sort of point when it comes to scientific talent. Of course, we have amazing top universities, Oxford, Cambridge, Imperial, UCL, you name it. We have the top universities who have had hundreds of years and sometimes even, you know, close to, I think uh, Oxford and Cambridge are close to 800 years old or more. Uh, but no one's really talking about, you know, young researchers and the they're, they're the future leaders of tomorrow, but no one really you know, talks about them. There's all these high level uh, sort of policy funding and uh, you know, money being pushed in, but it's not being seen in terms of the, the talent for the country. So I think that's where Britain is at at the moment. And that's something they could improve on in the future. Um, I'm just curious, too, how do other countries in Europe stack up in terms of what they have to offer, um, you know, academically and in, in pursuit of science? So I think it's fairly similar in terms of uh, research salaries. I think research salaries across Europe is lower, with the exception of Switzerland, where if you convert it to pounds, it comes to about uh, £80,000 as an average. But again, living costs there are quite high as well. And if you look at the US, if I convert it to pounds, it's about uh, £50,000. And I think Western Europe tends to be somewhere in the median of £34,000, as I mentioned in the article. So I think salaries everywhere is low. But I think in the UK, what we have, which is a bit different, is high immigration costs. So in, in Western Europe, it's like hundreds of pounds to immigrate into the country, especially, you know, science is a, is a global field. It's a bit different compared to, I would say, more traditional industry where you can get homegrown talent here because science, in, in science, ideas can come from anywhere. So that's, uh, that's what we've noticed. And even in my own research group, um, we had a lot of internationals. So that's like a microcosm of the broader scientific world. Uh, but in the UK, the, the government just seems to be increasing the visa costs. So in, in the article, I mentioned 3,700, but that's going to go up by quite a lot if they uh, decide to increase the health surcharge, which is sort of like a health insurance, but for the NHS, which it works slightly different from private health insurance. And it's increased... It's uh, proposed to be increased by 66% uh, this year. So I don't know how academics are going to cope with that amount if they want to move to this country. So I think that's where UK is a sort of outlier when you compare it to Western Europe. But academic salaries are fairly similar, I would say, across the region. So does, uh, and, and help me understand, um, are, is, is, that, uh, is that burden lower in other European countries? Um, is is, is I, I don't want to use the word bureaucracy, but I can't think of a better word. Is the bureaucracy or the hurdles uh, higher in, in Great Britain than they are in some of the other, uh, especially Western European countries? So I would say in terms of administrative bureaucracy, it's, I would say the UK is fairly good. I mean, the system is, is straightforward if you want to apply to come to this country, but the financial burden is definitely much higher. So we do see a, a difficulty in recruitment of postdoctoral researchers, which is what I mentioned in my article. Uh, people, I mean, at that point of time, people tend to have families. So if it's costing like 15,000 pounds, as I mentioned, to bring an entire family here, I think people would just choose to go elsewhere. And I think the burden also falls on women who might have families and, you know, trying to move everyone here. Um, would be a challenge. And then again, you know, what's happening to diversity in science? And that's a different topic altogether. That's, <laughs> that's something to think about as well. 
So talk to me about uh, opportunities for the private sector to become more involved. Um, you mentioned in your article, if research was seen as an investment rather than a charitable donation, um, this, this could be helpful. What prevents more um, support from the private sector at present? So I think at the moment, the way private sector funding works in, in terms of universities is they tend to fund PhD students, they tend to work you know, on very specific projects, and sometimes they also uh, recruit academics for consultancy work. But I think the gap lies in the fact that universities focus on basic research and industries and businesses are more interested in applied research. So I think focusing, you know, really bringing the focus to applied research can in, in make companies sort of invest a bit more. Um, and also, I think having targeted research institutes, so I mentioned um, having the Crick Institute, for example. So, you know, the government can be creative at this point. Until now, they used to, um, you know, speak about EU bureaucracy and so on. But now Britain can set its own policy. It's not you know, held back by any larger institutions. So I think they should really use innovative mechanisms. So having these sort of bespoke research institutes which focus on specific topics. So for example, we all know about the COVID vaccine, which has, you know, generated so much interest. So I think areas like that can really help, you know, businesses be interested because it's a two-way street when you talk about private investment, what's in it for them. So as long as they're able to get the, the talent, the ideas, and also the, the expertise that exists in these universities out to their, you know, to bring their products, that could be interesting. But again, I think one aspect that academics think about is oh, that their work should not be used for profit. But mm -hmm. we live in a, in a marketized world. And I think Academics also need to change their mindset. Not everything can be done, not, not for profit. I think we limit ourselves if we uh, sort of stick to that. Um, so as far as, as bringing um, researchers or bringing students in uh, to attend these, these schools, um, is, is there work to retain them as well? In other words, it's wonderful that they come and they get their education. And, and I could see where that would be an absolute boon, bringing bright, promising young minds into uh, these various fields. Is it in the interest of these institutes, for instance, though, to keep them or to try to persuade them to stay on as researchers or perhaps um, teachers or professors? Yeah, I, absolutely. I think it's in their interest because you need to build the next generation of researchers. So generally, people in the UK tend to move to, say, Switzerland, Germany. So Switzerland uses the highest higher salaries. Germany, because they have uh, they can build independent research careers, especially at the Max Planck Institute. Uh, actually, uh, this is a bit of a personal anecdote, but a friend of mine who completed his PhD and who's doing a short postdoctoral fellowship has been offered a position as a group leader. So that's something that, you know, in the UK, it's not possible yet. It takes a long time to get there. So I think it is in the interest of this country to retain the talent that they've trained and the talent that comes from outside as well, because how else are we going to become a science and tech superpower? This is very exciting. And uh, like I say, I, the, the only personal stake I have in this is I'm watching my son go away to school in, in Europe and, and to, to study some good, heavy science. And I, it just it's exciting to me to know that uh, there are so many opportunities. And, and I love, the, I love your, um, your advocacy for, so why don't we make Britain, you know, the, the science capital? 
I'd be just as happy to see him, you know, find a place, you know, doing research there as well. Uh, tell me this, Akilah, for people who uh, are following you or want to follow you on social media or otherwise would like to follow your writings, where's the best place that they can do that? So I am on X, formerly Twitter, as Akila underscore Jaira, and you can find me there, and I post all my work on there. So if you want to follow me, that's where I am. Okay. Thank you so much for being my guest today, and I wish you all the best. Thank you so much. Welcome back. This is our fourth and final segment of Moving Forward with Young Voices today. Happy to welcome another uh, new Young Voices contributor to the program. At least this is his first time on the program. Hunter Thomas joins us. And Hunter, uh, tell us just a little bit about yourself. Tell us who you are and what you do. Yeah, so my name is Hunter Thomas. Um, I'm from Albuquerque, New Mexico. Um... I uh, am a law student in Mexico, and so I'm finishing up my last year, looking forward to uh, taking the bar and finally getting into practice, not being in school anymore. Um, but I, I graduated from Brigham University in 2020 and got a political science degree. Um, and, uh, and like I said, going to finish school here soon to, to go out in the real world, real world, real world and work. So. Fantastic. Uh, well, and I, I'm really enjoying your article that I was looking at from freethepeople.org. Is SCOTUS skepticism merited? Now, I've heard some pretty strong skepticism directed at the Supreme Court, particularly in the last year and some odd months. Um, there have been some pretty big decisions that have been handed down. Talk to me about the, the skepticism that you're referring to. Where is that coming from? Well, maybe it's uh, it's 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 what I've seen online or you know, what I've seen where I live, but I think there has been a lot of people uh, who are concerned about where the court is headed towards. Um, they're concerned about the court's um, decision-making and, and really believe it's going into a, into a place where it's uh, basing decisions off of partisan political positions. And I wanted to push back on that. I don't think the court is headed in that direction. The court has always been a, uh, I believe, a changing force. It has a pendulum swing to it. And so um, I wanted to tell people, you know, even though there are things that you might be concerned about or, you know, not agree with, with the court's decisions to to respect that the court is still a, a legitimate institution and um, and that they're going to they're gonna be things that you're going to disagree with that they that they decide on. I have to admit, I was really surprised at, at a couple of the decisions, uh, the Roe v. Wade decision, the Bruin decision, um, even the affirmative action decision. Um, and, and maybe this is because I'm one of those, maybe I'm a skeptic, a closet skeptic who's kind of like, well, I don't know, the Supreme Court's you know rarely on the side of freedom. But I think they have actually done a very good job this last little bit um, in affirming that there are some proper limits to either what the federal government may rightly do or, you know, in some cases, you know, what state governments might do. Um, is there anything on the uh, radar screen that likewise uh, might generate more skepticism on the part of the people who've, like, who've been lately expressing skepticism over whether the court is just a front for the political right? 
Well, there's been some recent concerns, and this might be for another article, but uh, there's been a lot of ethical concerns um, uh, in terms of Justice Thomas and, and Justice Alito. There's been articles that have been written uh, about them both specifically, but I would also push back and say there's you know, other justices uh, who were appointed by Democratic presidents uh, have also had some potential ethical issues. And so I don't think it's necessarily that one side is coming out and deciding to you know, be unethical because they want to make whatever decision they, they, they can or want. Um, I, don't, I don't view it that way. But I think there might be some other concerns about the future of the court. Um, we have a presidential election coming, and, uh, you know, President Trump looks like the nominee that could change. But let's say there's a Republican president in 2025. Um, that could change the court even 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 more. I mean, we could have another retirement from a liberal justice, uh, but I think most importantly, there might be a concern over Justice Alito and Justice Thomas's health, and, and they may retire. And so if President Biden is reelected, there may be uh, another shift in the court. Um, but I do believe that most of the concerns come from the recent decision to Roe versus Wade, uh, Bruin, and affirmative action that just came out this past term. We're going to see some interesting cases um, specifically about the Chevron deference, which has to do with the that has to do with the administrative state. I think some liberals are concerned about, and and uh, and 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 so I think there might be more skepticism if the court were to adjust or even strike down that deference um, that the court gives to to administrative agencies. Um, and so I think we're going to continue seeing the skepticism as long as you know where the majority is right right now, but. Um, that could also change with some of the future decisions or depending on the presidential election. Okay. Um, talk to me about uh, the the court's decisions. Um, you know, there's an impression that, well, these were all razor thin, you know, five to four decisions. You point out in your article that uh, these most of these decisions, even even the controversial ones, really that weren't that much of nail biters. And frankly, uh, there's a lot of stuff that the court has been you know, pretty united on, it hasn't been, it, it doesn't appear partisan. Right. I think a lot of people, and, I, and, I'm, and I'm talking about this, I think Americans as a whole, there's a poll that came out that shows there's a lot of Americans that are showing a lot of mistrust in the Supreme Court. But I think my, my argument is, is to the left right now and saying that, look, we're not, you know, the court is not overturning tons of precedent you may think it is right but the court has turned over tons of precedent more precedent than than right now um this court has has you know discussed and decided on important issues and that may give a perception of of you know the court is overtaking so much but that's not necessarily true when you look at the numbers and again a lot of uh you know most of the court's decisions are unanimous or close to unanimous and that's not really taken into account in the liberal media, unfortunately. Um, and so that portrays a picture for people. I, I do cite that three of the most controversial decisions, affirmative action, um, including other other two, um, really were six, three decisions, and the rest were close to unanimous or unanimous. In fact, there were some surprising decisions from the court um, to strike down uh, you know, the independent legislative theory that was, uh, that was brought up during the 2020 election um, that was struck down by the court, and that included conservatives. Um, there was also an, a surprising uh, decision about uh, Native Americans and 
when you know Native American children are being adopted, whether they should stay with a Native American family or you know leave that community. And the court said, you know, we believe that those Native American children should stay within those communities of, of Native Americans. And that was a that was a herald decision by the left, and that included uh, Justice Gorsuch. And so, you know, I think we need to try to portray that there has been a lot of surprising decisions, and the court is not just going to just look at, especially with with the current majority, it's not going to look at a case and say, you know, I'm a Republican, I'm a conservative, I was appointed by a Republican president, therefore I need to make this decision to appease the Republican electorate. That's not how this works, um, and I think a lot. People on the left who want to make it seem that way, um, and so I think the focus should be on the left if they want to gain a majority again. Is they have to win elections, they have to point serious people on the court, and they have to work within the system. They can't just decide to pack the court because they're worried about democracy. Their side has also had some big wins. Obamacare was one of them. And mm-hmm. conservatives, instead of deciding we're going to pack the court or we're going to do, try to talk bad about the court, uh, you know, we decided to focus on electing a Republican president and put in serious justices. And that's what we did. And, and, and we have that majority now. That was from a lot of decades of work. And so left needs to put in that work if they, if they want to see um, if they want to see some serious jurisprudence on their end. Hunter, give me your take on the Supreme Court as an institution. Um, I, I've been taught, and I tend to lean towards the idea that this the system of governance that the, the founding generation gave us was never intended to hang on uh, who was appointed to the Supreme Court or not. It was just one of you know numerous tools that were there to make sure that uh, everything was working together, checking and balancing. Um, have, have we somehow shifted our perception to where we put too much emphasis on who's on the court and their political leanings and, um, you know, the potential for the court to be politicized. And are we seeing this accurately or is this just our imaginations getting the best of us? No, I think recently, and I can cite, we can cite past uh, nominations. I don't think this is new as in the five or 10 years ago, even though it seems like it, but, you know, uh, Justice, not Justice Bork, Judge Bork, Robert Bork was someone that was nominated and, and did, was not successful in in uh, becoming a Supreme Court justice. Just, uh, justice Thomas went through a difficult, um, a difficult process as well when he was nominated to the court. And so I think this has been going on for, for probably, you know, 20, 30 years where We've seen some of this politicization, but we haven't really seen much of it and really the mark of it within, I think, five five to ten years. And it's unfortunate. I, I think the founding fathers, like you mentioned, are intended that, you know, the court look at laws that Congress or state passes or the president, you know, executive action, whatever it may be, to look at and see if it's constitutional or not, and then decide on its merits and then move on. Um, and, and that's what the court, I believe, in my opinion, is doing. That's what they're restoring and and so that's why I'm trying to tell people, look, this is part of this. This is part of the process. This is part of the system. Um, and so, I hope that uh, with our current political climate, that we can change. I think the parties should kind of change what they think about the court. And I think maybe potentially that could change the way we look at the nomination process. Um, but I do believe we've, we've crossed through the con. I think we've crossed through the con a long time ago where these are going to be very political uh, political nominations and it's going to be a political process to get them on the court. And that's unfortunate. That's unfortunate. But um, I just I hope that uh, Amer- the American people will remember that. Okay, again, again, we are talking with uh, Hunter Thomas. He is a Young Voices contributor. Hunter, thank you so much.